Hello and welcome to another episode of Change One Thing, the show where we explore if tomorrow will really be what tomorrow will be. Hello, Lani here, and on this episode, I'm joined by Professor Emma Caval. Emma is an ARC Future Fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute of Deakin University. She's a cultural and medical anthropologist and is a research dynamo who is highly accomplished and awarded in her field. Emma is an expert on the health issues facing Indigenous Australians, the ethics of Indigenous remains, the impacts of colonisation and the challenge of finding the best way forward. She's also an expert on freezing and gave Deakin University's 2018 Harrison Lecture on the topic. In 2017, Emma established the Science and Society Network, which aims to bring researchers from across different disciplines to work together and help meet the great challenges of this century. Emma was a super engaging guest who had so much knowledge about areas of our history that often get overlooked. You're going to find this chat highly informative, so let's get to it. Change One Thing with Professor Emma Caval. Well, welcome, Emma. You're described as a research dynamo, and specifically, you're a cultural and medical anthropologist. Tell me, have you always been interested in human behaviour? Um, absolutely, yeah, since I, as long as I can remember, I suppose. Um, so I got into my field of research through a kind of uh, not a straight path at all. <laughs> so I started off doing medicine at university, at the University of Melbourne, many years ago now as a uh, sparkly 17-year-old. <laughs> um, and when I started, I realised that I missed English literature from high school, actually. I, I just felt it was just too much um, telling me facts and trying to stuff facts into my head. <laughs> so I picked up uh, on the side doing medicine, some literature subjects, and then I ended up doing a whole arts degree and uh, doing an honours year in medical anthropology, which was really exciting. Mm -hmm. I did a really great project in in Papua New Guinea and kind of got a taste for doing uh, research, my own independent research. Uh, And then when I finished uh, finally from this marathon eight-year undergraduate degree. So if uni students think that it's taking a long time, try try eight years. Um, so I uh, then I left Victoria, left Melbourne, and went to uh, the Northern Territory and to work as a doctor because mm. I was really passionate about Aboriginal health and, and Aboriginal justice. And were your parents sort of, did you grow up um, in an environment that sort of helped lead you down that research path of, um, well, originally medicine, but was that um, a bit impactful on you? Yeah, well, it's one of these things that it's easier to see in retrospect. <laughs> you know, at the time you just, I suppose, you know, do whatever seems like a good idea to do. Um, but, yeah, looking back, I think my own background was really important to where I've ended up. Mm. Um, and particularly my all my four grandparents are all Holocaust survivors from Poland. So I've got that mm. Polish surname wow. with a Polish W. Uh, and they'd all come as refugees to, to Australia. And my, then my parents were born 
um, after they came. So growing up, I suppose, you know, in some ways in, in different worlds in that I was you no know, normal kid at primary school, um, but uh, I've had this this background of all of these Holocaust survivors mm. um, and in my my grandparents and their their community of friends and knowing that these really horrible things that had happened to to my family and the family of a lot of other people that I knew. So I think only more recently have I kind of seen that my commitment to social justice, to mm. um, providing opportunity for people has been has been really important. All all of my grandparents were didn't have the opportunity to have an education um, at, at all uh, in little little towns in in eastern Poland, but when they came to Australia, um, their children went to university because there was free education <laughs> at that time, um, and they were able to you know, become really successful and really gr- great contributors to Australian society. So I'm I'm really passionate about providing opportunity. Mm. And I'm sure they had some incredible stories. Did you do a bit of delving and a bit of research into their, um, like your family's past? Was that something that you explored a little bit more deeply or did you just hear stories from them as a child about it? Um, Yeah, look, I think when you grow up with that in your background, you, yeah, you hear stories over time. I Mm. mean, survivors... And really, any people who have experienced um, severe trauma have have different ways of dealing with it. Some people like to talk about it. Some people don't want to talk about it. Um, but things get passed down, whether mm. it's through words or you know through you know through other ways. Yes, exactly. Um, as a young doctor, Emma. After graduating from the University of Melbourne, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, you set off to the Northern Territory but soon encountered many challenges working with the Indigenous uh, people in Northern Territory. Can you tell us about this time? I'm sure it was very formative for your research that you went into. Yeah, yeah, it was. So um, when I finished um, medicine, I was at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and I did not want to uh, be a, a medical officer um, <laughs> in one of those big hospitals. Um, I just felt that they were very hierarchical and it wasn't the kind of medicine that I wanted to, to practice. Mm. So I went off and did my um, internship the first year of, of working as a doctor in the Royal Darwin Hospital. So people would ask me, oh, did they send you there? <laughs> but actually... You volunteered? Chose. No, I had to get a job there. Um, yeah. And I was, yeah, uh, it was, yeah, it wasn't easy to get a job there because it is um, for a particular kind of doctor, it's really sought after place to work. Uh, and it was very formative. It was, it was formative to see uh, up close the really obvious effects of colonialism and of um, inequality mm. and what we call in the social sciences structural violence, mm. like the um, really, um, really a structural inequality over time that um, produces um, what you what you see in, mm. in many remote communities. And working in the in the Royal Down Hospital, 
you see it all. About seventy <laughs> percent um, of the patients are Aboriginal, and you know many of them from remote communities. Mm-hmm. So it is, um, yeah, it was a massive education for me. Yeah, some fast learning, I would uh, assume. So you have two specific lines of research. Let's talk about the first one, Australian racial politics. Can you describe your research that you've done around this? Yeah, well, this uh, came out really of that experience of working in Aboriginal health. So I was working initially in the hospital and I'm a big picture person. I kind of realised that towards the end of my medical degree. And so I moved um, reasonably quickly into working into public health, Aboriginal public health, and then Aboriginal public health research, (laughs) even more complicated. But that's where you figure out how to do public health better. So I, I enjoyed clinical medicine. I really enjoyed helping people one by one. But I also wanted to have an impact on um, preventing the need for them to come to hospital in the first Mm. place. Uh, How do we improve people's health health in the communities where they're living? Uh, That seemed to me obviously a better option uh, if you could choose. Mm -hmm. So, and in public health research, we learn how to do things better. We try different things out, see what works, see what doesn't work and uh, try to be able to spend the few public health dollars that governments will will uh, devote to public health to spend them in the, the best way possible. So I was working in public health research um, and with some medical work at the Aboriginal Health Service um, kind of on the side. And after a while, um, I kind of was struck by the situation I was in. Mm. So we had a lot of people like myself who are non-Indigenous, who'd come from the cities because of their passion for uh, trying to address Indigenous disadvantage. And then we had um, Indigenous people obviously working um, in research as well, Indigenous researchers, and then people in the communities who we were trying to help. Um, and it struck that it struck me that this was a kind of an anthropological problem. Like what did it mean for people like me, white, middle-class, left-wing, progressive people Mm. to come, leave their homes where they were brought up and come and try and work with Aboriginal people with very like specific ideas about how they might, um, how they might have positive effects. And specifically, they did not want to be telling Indigenous people what to do Mm. because that would be assimilationist um, or that would be just like the colonial people who'd done this in the past, Mm. like missionaries, for example. So uh, through really experiencing doing this work and reflecting on it, I realised that this group of non-Indigenous people was actually really interesting and had very um, specific views and a specific culture, um, which had uh, a lot of influence on how Indigenous programs played out. Mm, so I thought, mm, this this sounds interesting. So I did my PhD on that. <laughs> wow. And did you ever sort of go out and stay in some of the remote Aboriginal communities just to get sort of a sense of how they, I mean, their culture fascinates me and even some of their um, medical practices from ancient times are just 
amazing and were actually way ahead of, you know, of their time. Did you get to spend some time like learning about the culture in any of the communities? Uh, yeah. Yep. I spent um, a time in, in a, you know, a few different communities, probably mm. Elko Island was the place where I spent um, most time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I worked a lot with a group called Yalu, which was a, a re- education and research group that um, of, of women who, um, and I, I worked with them to help build their organisation and build the capacity to uh, interact with with research and service organisations. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a really formative time, and yeah, absolutely the uh, linguistic diversity, the cultural diversity of um, Aboriginal communities in this country is is absolutely amazing. And that's mm. something that uh, we we need to be know, doing more about supporting those communities. And another element of your research has been settler colonisation and post-colonialism research. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah. Well, it um, is, I suppose, another aspect of what I've just been uh, talking about, yeah. that um, the fact that we live in a country that was colonised by mm. the British and that the Aboriginal population was completely decimated, you know, over and over again, originally by disease, frontier wars, and then we might say the slow violence of um, poor services, poor access to services, uh, and intergenerational trauma, stolen generations. I mean, the list goes on. So for all Australians, you know, whether you are really engaged in Indigenous issues or not, whether you've been here, your family's been here since the first fleet or if you're Mm -hmm. just off the boat, Mm -hmm. we all um, benefit from the fact that the land was stolen and the resources were stolen and that people were murdered. So, Mm. and I suppose going back to my own background, I, you know, feel strongly that we we need to acknowledge that. I mean, my own family, even though we were fleeing persecution and you know, find, trying to find a place that we could be allowed to, to live, mm. if, you know, hopefully flourish, but at least just you know, not be murdered, um, I also have to accept the responsibility of living on stolen land and mm. benefiting from um, a government which is continuous with, with the colonisers mm. uh, and the whole idea of terra nullius, which we know now is was is a fiction, the idea that Aboriginal people were not here, that nobody was here. That was the legal basis of Australian colonisation and of the Australian state. Mm-hmm. Um, and although we've had things like native title that have tried to uh, account for that or, or acknowledge that, and terra nullius is, is officially not uh, recognised within law, it doesn't take away the fact that, you know, the Australian state um, fundamentally is is based on a lie. Uh, mm. So, of course, it's, it's uh, something that you can't, um, you know, we can't go back to 1788, and I don't think anyone's proposing that, but we do need to really take seriously the effects of 
colonisation mm. and, and the effects of where our country is based, um, the effects of that on it, on everything that we do. What do you think of the national apology that Australia are... Uh, what word am I looking for? Yeah. yeah. What do, um, so that was a few years ago now. What Do you think that helped sort of that national apology? Do you think that helped the situation of sort of what happened and, and how we're dealing with things now? Or did it create more of a divide? Um, I, well, from my perspective, it was absolutely a good thing. And I was in Federation Square mm. with many other Australians um, watching it on the big screen back in 2008. And it was magical. You know, it was really a special moment and tears were flowing and it was a, a very diverse group of people. So, oh, of course, you know, we we need to apologise for, for so many things. Um, and those uh, what you might call symbolic gestures are really important mm. um, and but so is is action um, and those things have to go together mm. yeah I, I agree um, I grew up uh, on the Murray River and we were actually immersed in indigenous culture through school like at a young age we had you know we were given Aboriginal names and we, we learned a lot about the culture up there um, tell me is there any sort of myths that we've been taught um, around the colonialism issue uh, well one way to to think about that is, um, massacre sites. I mean, that's something that mm. um, there's a really great website, which uh, <laughs> it called? I think it's called the Names of Places. Yeah. But I'd like to, I want to check that. Um, there's a really great website just recently released that maps all of the, the massacre sites in Australia. And our um, frontier wars, as Henry Reynolds um, wrote about you know, many years ago, a uh, really um, important historian, are uh, a really important part of our history. So I would like to see uh, those um, frontier wars talked about mm. alongside the other important wars that have been part of Australia's history. Mm, so I think when that you would think a good start, <laughs> yes. Well, when you think of you know Anzac Day and and all the things that we acknowledge with that, you know that could be something that could definitely be tied into Australia Australia's history. Um, you know, speaking of those frontier wars, um, are we still dealing with racism and anti racism, and how far do we have to go in this aspect um, in Australia when it comes to Indigenous people now? Uh, well, look, racism is a increasing issue in this country and all around the world. Mm. So if I was even talking to you five years ago, I would be very concerned about racism. Um, now I've kind of gone on to, up to red alert on racism. And sorry, it's not, it's not a laughing matter, but it's... it's um, and it's it's about Indigenous people, but it's about it's about um, Muslim people, it's about Jewish people. The rise of the of the far right in this country and uh, in many countries in the world is of massive concern, um, mm. and the government needs to be doing more. 
So you've spoken in the media, Emma, in regards to Indigenous DNA testing uh, and ethics around Indigenous remains. What issues are we facing in regards to these two topics? Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, I So after my work trying to understand the experiences of non-Indigenous people, like an unusual group to look at, um, but uh, I, th- I felt really important to understand the culture of, of non-Indigenous people who are working um, in Indigenous fields. I finished that work up and it really, in some ways, it ended up being about cultural difference, like how do we understand the cultural difference of Indigenous people and how do these, this group of, of non-Indigenous people conceptualise the kind of difference that Aboriginal people have. And as I was moving from my PhD into thinking about, well, what comes next? What's what's my next project? I was interested in the idea of biological difference. So I spent some time at the University of California during my PhD as a visiting scholar. And during that time, the first so-called ethnic drug was released in the US. So this was a drug that lowered blood pressure, but it was just for African-Americans. So this was back in 2005, and it was really quite surprising because we were told, as in the general public was told in the early 2000s, that there was no such thing as race. There's no such thing as, as different races with different genes because mm. all of our genes are 99.9% the same. Uh, this was the outcome of the Human Genome Project, mm. which uh, was a huge amount of resources put into sequencing the human genome. Uh, and so just a few years after that, we had this drug for African-Americans. So it seemed to be a really strange situation. How do we get to a place where there's a drug for a particular racial group? Um, And it turned out that the uh, science of genetics, rather than finding out that we're all the same, what attention was being paid to those really small ways in which different groups of humans are different to each other. Mm. And these were being really focused on by drug companies who could see it as an avenue for new markets, Um, but eventually also by uh, researchers who thought that these very small areas of difference could actually be important for health. So this led me to think about um, genetics in the context of Aboriginal health. And at the time, it was seen as a very stigmatised science. So in, uh, in Aboriginal health, and because of these issues of colonialism that, that we talked about before, there is a lot of, um, a lot of baggage about research in general but particularly about things like measuring heads, looking at different blood groups, research that tried to say how are Aboriginal people biologically different from others. And uh, Aboriginal communities have really not liked this research at all and really with good reason uh, because in earlier periods of Australian history, science was really important in justifying 
colonisation in justifying that Aboriginal people were these terms like primitive, mm. um, that they were inferior to Europeans and they would naturally die out when in contact with Europeans. So these kind of views, which just sound absolutely horrible, were like mainstream science in the, say, in the late 19th or even the early 20th century. And we really have to remember that. We can't forget that. It was not very long ago that science was being used for ways which you know, I think are, are absolutely horrible. Mm. Um, so this baggage uh, is very much part of genetics. Um, and, of course, you know, genetics and eugenics was really important in justifying what my family went through um, in the Holocaust, mm. that the idea that Jews were genetically inferior, racially inferior and needed to be exterminated. So... I was obviously, you know, sceptical about the how genetics might be used in Aboriginal health, but I was also really interested mm. <laughs> because uh, I could see it would be really interesting to see how the whole field of genetics unfolded um, because as a, as a doctor, um, I know that, that genetics is important um, and with all of the... Um, investment going into genetics, it's only going to become more and more important. And we're finding out amazing things which are really transforming medicine. Mm. And with the Indigenous remains, so if we're finding them, um, you know, currently in certain sites, what's the process? Do they give you a a call up and say, um, Emma, what do we do? do? Yeah, well, I don't uh, deal directly with Indigenous remains. So Mm -hmm. Uh, people like physical anthropologists uh, and and Aboriginal heritage specialists would do that. So I'm I yeah I'm not involved in you know in actually dealing with them. But where I I have been um, interested in uh, the question of unprovenanced human remains. So this is human remains um, in museums or elsewhere. Sometimes human remains. Um, that are uh, owned by Aboriginal organisations but don't have a specific provenance. So we don't know exactly where they're from. Mm. Um, And this is one of the potential applications of genetics. So um, for the last decade or so, I've really watched the unfolding of genetic technologies and how they're impacting on Indigenous communities, and that, that's been my focus. So that's taken me across a whole range of different issues that I never planned to become an expert <laughs> in, and you know, I'm an expert in, in only a kind of nar- narrow way, but I um, work with ancient DNA scientists who look at DNA samples of both human remains and also living people to try and figure out the the story of ancient Australia, mm. the story of Aboriginal Australia, you know, many, many thousands of years ago. And I also look at the issue of genetic testing and how um, the kind of 23andMe, Ancestry.com testing mm. for Aboriginal ancestry might impact um, Australia. And then I also look at uh, precision medicine and how um, genetic, um, the the uh, impact of technologies in, in medicine, um, how that might benefit Indigenous people or they might get left behind. 
Yes. Wow. Um, a quote from an article in the Deacon Disruptor I thought was incredibly interesting. Uh, you stated, one of my main projects for the past seven years has centred on a large collection of blood samples from dozens of Indigenous communities in the 60s and 70s and preserved in freezers in Canberra for half a century. That is... Uh, Incredibly interesting. What are you, what are we doing with those samples? Yeah, well, that was an amazing project that I was involved with for quite some time, and it started off with with a phone call. So I had been looking at genetics in Aboriginal communities and talking to the very few geneticists, genetic scientists who were doing projects with Aboriginal communities. And I'd heard for a few years that there was this collection of blood samples in Canberra and nobody knew what to do with them. Mm. But it wasn't until 2010 that I actually managed to find time to pick up the phone <laughs> and call the uh, the professor of genetics at ANU who was the guardian of the samples, the custodian. Mm. And within about 10 minutes of, of talking, he was saying can you help me figure out what to do with these samples? <laughs> so he'd been waiting for my phone call for 15 years. <laughs> he'd been trying to figure out what should happen to these samples for a long time. Since it became clear that, the, that there were ethical issues mm. with using them. So these are samples that were collected in the 60s and 70s mostly. How did they collect them exactly? Are they... Well, some were collected by the by scientists mm -hmm. who would go to communities and go or go to missions, and um, through means that it's hard to piece together exactly what people were told because mm. there was no idea of informed consent uh, at that time, or the idea was only just emerging again. You know, because of the Holocaust, we mm. have the whole idea of bioethics and informed consent. But that was still kind of in development in the 60s and 70s and it wasn't until really the, the late 80s that we started to have consent forms. So back then um, probably there were discussions with, say, the mission, the elders on a mission and the mission staff who obviously there was a power relationship there about what the mission staff told you to do. And then um, the elders in a community would get everyone else to line up mm. and give blood samples. So that was the way okay. that some of the samples were collected. Um, they probably might, some of the elders might have had a vague idea that this was to, for example, try and understand how Aboriginal people are related to other people in the region. Mm. Okay. Uh, other samples were collected for medical purposes. So there might have been um, a screen of everyone in a particular community for a particular disease that was uh, around at the time. And then uh, a small part of those samples would be sent down to Canberra and mm. without the people knowing about it at all. So what did we conclude or is there a conclusion of what is going to happen with the samples? Yeah, there is. So I was working uh, as a consultant with uh, the Australian National University for, for quite a few years to help them figure out what to do. So we formed a Aboriginal consultative committee of prominent Indigenous people with expertise in relevant areas from outside the university 
And I was engaged as a consultant to write a very big book-length report all about the history of the collection, the potential ethical issues, potential cultural issues, and the options for what could be done with the collection. Mm. And the committee decided that the university should retain the samples, should keep them, that they were really important. Um, We're talking here about 7,000 samples from about 50 communities, mostly in the top half of Australia, uh, and that they should be retained as a collection that was under Indigenous control. Mm. So the... Indigenous Majority Board was formed. Um, Mick Gooder, who you might know as the previous Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner, he was the the inaugural um, chair of the governance board. Uh, And it was, it turned out to be the first Indigenous governed genome facility in the world. Fascinating. This episode is presented by Deakin University. You can find all of the show notes and other great content related to this chat at disruptor.deakin.edu.au or find us on socials at Deakin Research. Emma, I read in your bio that you're also an expert on freezing. You have co-edited a book called Cryopolitics, Frozen Life in a Melting World. What can you tell us about your research on the topic of freezing? Yeah, so that book, um, Cryopolitics, was the outcome of a collaboration with my colleague at, at Yale University, Joanna Radin, and both of us were really interested in these uh, these researchers in the middle of the century, middle of last century. Uh, who collected blood samples from Indigenous people. So we've just described those uh, blood sample collections um, in the 60s and 70s. So that was only possible because of freezing. And it was only in the 1950s that the technology for transporting samples across long, long distances, so mobile freezing technologies, was developed and it was actually developed in the uh, cattle industry and then transferred over into scientific applications. Mm. So we got together and organised a whole wider group of scholars to write this book all about freezing. So freezing in medical contexts, including things like cryogenics, so people who when they're on the verge of death or when they have mm. just when they've medically died freeze their bodies, uh, and this this happens particularly in the US but also um, in Europe, and they get their bodies maintained in these facilities. I've never been to one, but it must be really creepy, <laughs> full of these tanks that are f- keeping these bodies frozen for some future time when they might be thawed out, when we might have the technology to safely thaw them out. Um, so that is really interesting. And also thinking about things like seed banking um, and uh, banking of genetic material from extinct animals mm. that we hope we can then reanimate again in the future. Um, so Jurassic Park, bring back the dinosaurs. That's the- <laughs> right. Or even just a few frogs <laughs> or, um, you know, we don't know. We're, we're losing so much biodiversity mm. um, and freezing is both uh, an incredible technology but also can 
cause a kind of complacency because we think, well, we'll freeze stuff. That's like a insurance mm. for when things really get terrible. Like a bit of a Noah's Ark of frozen uh, animal species, I guess. Yeah, that's right. So there's frozen ark projects, exactly yeah. what what they're called. Wow, it's taking. I'm thinking about all kinds of things. Where I've, you know, the frozen woolly mammoth, and even in Austin Powers, one of those movies. I don't know if you've seen those, but they actually freeze like a live person, and then he gets he gets to go to the future because he's frozen, and then he wakes up. All I'm not sure if we're quite up to doing that yet, freezing a a live human, and so they can sort of preserve them for the future. No, we're not, not up to that. But these people are often, I think, yeah, very well, rich people because it costs a lot of money mm. who freeze their bodies uh, are hoping that in the future somebody will thaw Bring them. Bring them back, yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of uh, dystopic ideas that it's probably more likely they might be you know, harvested for organs rather than mm. actually brought back or, or who knows what. But it is, it is science fiction uh, at the moment. <laughs> But if you want to spend your money on something, I suppose. Yeah, and I guess we see it too even with, um, you know, freezing of eggs to have um, children later in life. Well, We're seeing a lot of um, technology around freezing. How will this uh, research that you're doing around freezing affect us in the future? Well, freezing slows down time. Uh, it slows down metabolism. Uh, it delays things. And that has has benefits and, and has disadvantages mm. as well. Um, one of the things we looked at in, in the book was the idea that freezing actually stops death from happening entirely. Mm. So it, wow. it tries to move death completely out of our um, kind of sphere of, of experience. Um, and if that's by... You, I mean, cryogenics is, is probably the best example, but also trying to uh, delay the death of a species by by freezing a part of it. Mm. Uh, and we really thought about how death is, is important to life and imagining life without death is, is, a, you know, is a horror movie in some ways mm. as well. So... Yeah, that was a um, some really interesting reflections that we had. <laughs> In regards to your areas of research, if you could change one thing uh, today to best influence our future, what would that be? Just one thing. Well, in terms of of my research, which I described, is really about the uh, implications of genetics, and now we call it genomics um, for Indigenous people. So, in terms of my research, I think that having Indigenous people in charge, in control of new technologies that will affect them is really important. Mm. And that is actually happening with um, the uh, various initiatives that I'm part of, including the, the um, uh, Genomics Health Futures Mission, which is this uh, national investment of $500 million um, and through my involvement with that, um, I've met, I've, I haven't said I've done it, but my, my involvement of that has really shown me that uh, Indigenous people are really at the table um, mm-hmm. and helping to make decisions and making decisions about technologies that will affect them. 
So that's a change that I've been really happy to see in um, the, the years that I've been involved in this field. But more broadly, the change that we need to see in the world, well, where to start? I mean, <laughs> there's, you know, there's so many things that need to happen and obviously climate change is really number one um, and cli- addressing climate change is really about addressing the the social the, it's about addressing social issues and it's about changing the way that our our societies work and and that's a a, a massive challenge so i suppose my work on freezing and thinking about what happens when we can just delay and delay and delay um i think that was maybe a a very small um, contribution towards the kind of thinking we need to do. Um, but, yeah, there's so much more work to do. Mm, fantastic. You established the Deakin Science and Society Network in 2017 with the aim of bringing researchers together from all disciplines with the knowledge that to meet the great challenges of this century, scientists, humanities and social science researchers need to work together together. Emma, tell us, how is this network going and what's it like to have so many amazing brains all together solving the key issues of our time? Well, I, I, brought, I, I worked on this network and, and have stoked it into being really because I could see the importance of interdisciplinary research. So all of the, the big questions that we're facing, whether that's uh, energy or climate change, or medical technologies, and how to make sure that the effects of these are are equitable across the whole of society and across humans and non-humans that we share the planet with. Um, All of these questions need multiple disciplines to even start to think about answers. And my own background has been very multidisciplinary. I've kind of dabbled and mm. not dabbled, I've, you know, got grounding in really different disciplines and particularly within the sciences, within the biomedical sciences and uh, within anthropology and the social sciences. So I really wanted to um, create opportunities for those kind of collaborations to happen. Um, and universities can there are a lot of barriers in place in universities to working across disciplines and working mm. across faculties so i wanted to create some incentives to 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 face those barriers to face those challenges Wow, it sounds fascinating and I can't wait to see what what you guys are working on in that network. Emma, we have a fast few set of questions for you. So strap in, are you ready? (laughs) She's shaking her head, no. Um, Emma, what is the best piece of advice you've been given on your path to success? Oh, I've, I've been told by some people that I'm kind of known for not taking any advice. <laughs> so. I love it. <laughs> so you, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's a great answer. That's one of the best ones we've had. Um, and thinking of our future, Emma, is time really our most precious, unrenewable resource and why? 
Uh, I don't have the hours in the day to <laughs> answer that question. Well, you can just freeze things. So, you know, we can buy ourselves more time with freezing. Oh, yeah, I wish. <laughs> I wish I could freeze the world and have that extra week, month, year to get everything done. If you could recommend one book to the younger generation to get them on the right path to ensure our Earth's future, what would it be? The Lorax, which probably they've already read. What is the, what's that book about? Oh, it's a Dr. Seuss which kind of reveals my my literature tastes (laughs) at the moment. But, yeah, I've been reading The Lorax uh, every night. I pretty much know it off by heart. But it is – it's written in 1970 – the 1970s and it is an environmental tale. Beautiful. We will link to that in the show notes (laughs) as well. And lastly, if your life was a movie, what would it be called and who would star in it? (laughs) I'm phoning a friend. Um, Who uh, are you? Who did you ask? Are you asking your mum? I asked my mum because my daughter is at school and she can't (laughs) help me. (laughs) She would help me. Um, uh, Intrepid going where angels fear to tread. I don't know what that is. Does that make any sense to you? We will find out. Oh, maybe it's because you're delving in, in things you know, that other people are sort of scared to delve in. Okay. I've had uh, Wonder Woman. Oh, yeah. suggestion from my phone a friend. Yes. Okay. Well, Wonder, you are Wonder Woman. Even when I read your bio, I was like, wow, Emma has done everything. She has done so many years of study and research. And so Wonder Woman's definitely, um, I'm gonna definitely regret a great that. one. I'm already regretting that. <laughs> Emma, this has been so insightful uh, and I really hope you get the nickname of Wonder Woman because <laughs> you are ma- doing some amazing things. Thank you so much for joining us today on Change One Thing. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to review, subscribe and share with your friends.